Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum. It's just good to be back together again. Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on the corner of Nicollet Mall and 12th Street here in downtown Minneapolis, is the site. Thursday noon is the time. All comers, be you present in person, and we're glad you're here, or via radio or television, are the audience. I, Donald Meisel, minister here at Westminster, am your host, and happy to be so. Voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective, is the overarching rubric which has been bringing us together some seven or eight times over the past eight years, seven or eight times each year. And William Blair, Jr. is today's voice of conscience. His issue, as spelled out in the title of his address, the global environment and the extinction crisis. Mr. Blair just recently completed seven years as president of the Nature Conservancy, an organization formed in 1950 to protect and preserve a critical representation of the natural endowment that we have all inherited. The Nature Conservancy's goal has been compared to the mission assigned to Noah by the Lord. I couldn't miss picking up on that analogy. <laughs> Who instructed, the Lord instructed Noah to develop a strategy, as it were, for the preservation of genetic diversity, two by two. Under William Blair's leadership, the Nature Conservancy quadrupled its membership to 300,000, doubled its staff to more than 600 with offices in 30 states, raised $300 million in private funds, established programs in 10 foreign countries, and brought more than 1 million acres of nature areas under protection in the United States, Canada, Latin America, and the Caribbean. Before going with the Conservancy, Mr. Blair headed the Paris Bureau of Newsweek. And before that, 1970 to 80, he was Deputy Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs in the State Department. And sometime before that, he went to Princeton. In a moment, I'll ask him to come to this podium. Let me say, however, to the radio audience, let me alert you that you, too, have the privilege of submitting questions. And if in the course of uh, his statement you have a question, don't hesitate to call it in to the church office. The number is 332-3421. 332-3421. The Global Environment and the Extinction Crisis. Mr. Blair. Thank you, Dr. Mosel. Thank you, Dr. Mosel, very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to come and talk a little bit with you this morning in the Westminster Town Hall Forum about essentially conservation matters. I know that the forum has a distinguished record of focusing public attention on issues that need greater exposure, and I, I do hope you're going to agree with me, if you don't already, that this is an issue, this is a family of issues, 
which really seriously needs greater public attention, a greater public priority now. I'd like to, like to start by just recalling to you an idea that, that sounds so simple uh, that's, uh, that it, it should be very familiar to everybody, and yet, historically, it's pretty new. So new that a lot of people just haven't grasped it yet. And that is this simple notion that we human beings not only can change, but today we are changing the world around us, the physical and biological world, profoundly. And I'm talking now about changes like, for example, the drying up of the whole Aral Sea, which I'm sure most of you know is a body of water in Central Asia that's larger than Lake Michigan, but which is disappearing so fast today because the rivers that feed it have been dammed up and, uh, and are being diverted for irrigation and other purposes, so fast that by the end of this century, 10 or a dozen years from now, the RLC is projected to have totally disappeared. And there'll be nothing left but a, but a salt marsh to take its place. Or we're talking about changes that you read about every day, like the decline of the world's forests. In El Salvador, just to pick a small country as one example, El Salvador still had forest cover on more than 10% of the country just a few years ago, half a million acres of it, as recently as the 1960s. But by the end of the 1970s, it was virtually all gone, all the forest cover of that country. And these are illustrative changes. These are just small fragments of a total pattern of change that's occurring today enormously rapidly all around the world. I think two aspects of that pattern of change are particularly familiar to us and underline all the others. And I'm going to recall them to you. One, of course, is the explosive growth of population around the world. When I was born in 1927, we didn't even have two billion people in the world. It sounds like a lot, but, it was <coughs> but in hindsight, it's a relatively small number. It was about 1930 that the world population curve hit the two billion mark. Today, as you know, we're over five billion. Within a decade or about a decade, uh, it is predicted that we will hit six billion people. And in the lifetime of my long since adult children, we're going to be at 10 billion people, more than twice as many, roughly, as are alive on Earth today. Now just think about that for a minute. Since the 5 billion people that we already have are being supported, and as you know, in all too many cases, for all too many hundreds of millions, supported very inadequately, uh, only by living off our capital, that is to say, only by destroying or using up irreplaceable natural resources, you'd think that people would think the world was overpopulated now. But imagine what the pressures on our resources are going to be in 30 or 40 years when we have two people living for every one that we have today. That's one of the underlying changes. The other one, almost as familiar, but is the growth, the spread of technologies. Over the two centuries, if you like, since the Industrial Revolution, but even more rapidly, over the few decades, the four decades or so since World War II, when you remember the shortages of conventional materials led to a massive shift to synthetics, chemicals, fibers, plastics, 
many of which, as it turned out, were potentially harmful. And the products and the byproducts of these new technologies are putting their own pressures on resources, notably to our great chagrin in the form of pollution. In our country alone, think about this for a minute, we now generate more than a ton of toxic waste materials, poisonous waste materials, for every single American, every single year, a ton for each of us. Contaminated drinking water has become a serious problem in more than half of our states. Acid rain and other pollutants are killing and threatening forests and lakes all around the Northern Hemisphere. It started in Europe, where they call it Waldsterben, the death of forests. But we've got it now here in our Northeast and in Canada. And I just heard the other day that China is now beginning to recognize the problem. So it's going right around the world in the North Temperate Zone. Well, no place is safe from those poisonous pollutants anymore. Toxic matter is being discovered not only in the farthest reaches of Antarctica, but even now in the, in the greatest depths of our ocean trenches. You just can't get away from it anywhere. Well, under the combined pressure of these two changes, if you like, the, the population curve and the explosion of technologies to go with it, the natural environment, as one scientist wrote not long ago, is in full retreat. And I want to give you just a little sort of updater on that, a little status report on the global environment. And I'd like to start by, by looking at the air we breathe. What could be a more basic natural resource than that? But we know now that our own activities, human activities, are significantly altering the chemistry of the Earth's atmosphere. And one example that's becoming quite familiar is the buildup of uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere from the burning of wood, all these forests that we're clearing and cutting around the world, especially tropical forests, and from the burning of fossil fuels, oil, coal, natural gas. And the so-called greenhouse effect, that's becoming a well-known phrase now of this buildup, which is, and it's aggravated by other gases from our industrial and, ac uh, and agricultural activity, the greenhouse effect is turning into a warming, is producing a warming of our planet. And the scientists who study these things are telling us that the warming trend is already underway. It's not something that maybe is going to happen down the road. It's already measurable. And at present rates, it could disrupt, significantly disrupt the climate of the whole globe and the rainfall patterns of the whole globe within 50 years. Well, your children and mine, or at least our grandchildren, are going to be alive in 50 years, and they're going to have to cope with those consequences. And one, just to give you just one sample likely consequence of such a disturbance of our climate and rainfall patterns, if present trends are not changed substantially and soon, is that the climatologists are telling us that, for example, the grain belt of North America, of the US and Canada, which can be considered the granary of the world, we're not only feeding ourselves, we're feeding a great many other people with the products of that grain belt. The grain belt could be an area of serious drought within 50 years, permanent drought. And the consequences of that for our effort to keep feeding the human race are so severe that at least one scientist has predicted that within that time, uh, the 
shortfall in grain production could kill, could starve a, a billion, a billion people. So these are the kinds of consequences that are looming up ahead of us down the road if we don't do something about it. A still newer threat to the atmosphere is the one you've been reading about under the shorthand title of CFCs. It deals with a, a family of synthetic chemicals called chlorofluorocarbons. I always have to stop and think that one over. CFCs, they're used in refrigerators and air conditioners and aerosol cans and foam plastics. Uh, and the emissions of the gas that these constitute are reaching the, the stratosphere, the ozone layer, which shields us from radiation from the sun. And through a chemical process, it's eating a large hole in that ozone layer. You've read about this, read about this being centered over Antarctica at certain seasons. The anticipated consequence of that chemical reaction, of that bit of atmospheric pollution, is increased radiation, the suppression of human immune systems, which means we're going to be more liable to disease, reduced crop growth, and an increase in skin cancer, which is already happening, according to a survey I just saw the other day, already becoming epidemic in this country. And meanwhile, we've come to take for granted the fact that all around the world today, it's just commonplace that air quality in given locations is significantly less than the minimum set by health authorities for the preservation of our health. Well, that's just the air. Let's take another basic natural resource, water. The water we drink and water our crops with. In many areas today, as I'm sure you all know, groundwater, or more accurately, I always think it ought to be called underground water because that's what we mean, is being pumped out faster than nature can replenish it. As a result, the long growth in acreage under irrigation around the world has virtually stopped. And in this country, believe it or not, irrigated area in the states that are most dependent on that huge Ogallala aquifer in the Plains states, the irrigated area in those states is actually now declining. And the Ogallala aquifer, of course, we've long since learned is being rapidly overdrawn. And the effective water supply that we have, of course, is being further reduced by the pollution problem, pollution from waste dumps and agricultural and urban runoff, acid rain and other sources. The Environmental, Agen uh, Environmental Protection Agency in Washington found recently in a study that already two-thirds, two out of three Americans living in rural areas are forced to drink contaminated water, water contaminated by pesticides or herbicides or other dangerous compounds. Chronic water shortage is now not only affecting the Middle East, where we sort of grew up expecting it, but most of sub-Saharan Africa and substantial parts of Australia, India, the Soviet Union, and our own country. I'm thinking primarily of the Southwest. Hundreds of millions of people today around the world lack even adequate basic sanitation, and they have trouble getting enough water to survive on. Polluted water, according to the United Nations, today kills an estimated 25 million people a year. 25 million, just that one small piece of the problem. By the year 2000, which always sounds like such a long way off, but as you know, we're pretty close to it now. By the year 2000, at current rates, at least 30 countries, according to hydrologists, are expected to face serious water scarcity. Fortunately, we're not quite in that bracket yet but down the road. 
Let's take one more basic natural resource, our soil, the good earth. Currently, we're losing tens of billions of tons of it to erosion and washing away down rivers and streams to the sea and being lost around the world every year. Billions of tons in this country alone every year. One third of our cropland is already suffering significant net loss of soil, and in Iowa, Right in the heart of our farm belt, the uh, U.S. Soil Conservation Service found not long ago in a study that in the century and a half, roughly since settlement started there and uh, we first put the plow to that dark soil, we've lost about half of all the soil we, that we started out with in that rich state. An inch of soil can take a thousand years to build. So that means for practical purposes that the soil we're allowing to waste away is being lost permanently. And as uh, other as scientists have commented, civilization might survive without fossil fuels, without any fossil fuels at all. We could probably manage. But without soil, no one thinks that civilization could survive. With a third of the Earth's land already classified as arid or semi-arid, we're presently rendering another 30 million acres a year agriculturally worthless through, among other things, soil loss and also over-cultivation, over-grazing, salinization, and other problems. 30 million acres a year we're losing of arable land. That's an area three times the size of Switzerland. If these things, if these trends continue by the end of this century, again, a little more than a decade off is all we're talking about, we're going to have lost, at current rates, we're going to have lost almost one-fifth, one acre out of five, of the presently existing arable land in the entire world today. Now remember what else is happening in that 10 or 11 or 12 years that are left of this century. While we're losing one-fifth of our farmland, we're going to be gaze, gaining a billion mouths to feed. And it doesn't look as though we can count on the oceans to bail us out. Our fisheries are declining. We've destroyed some of them by overfishing. We're, we're polluting our estuaries and our coastal waters, and that's destroying other fisheries and shell fisheries. So net, uh, sorry, per capita fish catch around the world today has been on the decline per capita since at least the 1960s. So it doesn't look like the, the salvation is there. The loss of these farmlands, these productive lands, and these productive fisheries is surely all the more intolerable when you remember that one out of every 10 people in the world today, that's more than half a billion people, goes to bed at night every night without having had at least the minimum amount of food to keep him or her alive. One out of 10 people alive today. So we're not only misusing and, and polluting our natural systems, we're well along towards transforming some of them out of existence altogether. Take wetlands, for example. North and Central Europe was largely wetland, marshes and swamps, back in the days of the Roman Empire. But by the end of the medieval period, the inhabitants of North and Central Europe had so thoroughly drained their lands to make new fields for agricultural purposes that they had to start draining the sea 
And today, there are just two significant wetlands in all of the country of Belgium. And none of the other countries of North Central Europe outside of the Soviet Union and Scandinavia uh, is doing much better. In the United States, we're not doing much better either. The, the Fish and Wildlife Service has found that in the two centuries we've been a nation, we've drained or filled or otherwise developed and lost as wetlands more than half, something like 55% of all the wetlands we started out with a couple of centuries ago. And we're still losing them at the rate of something approaching half a million acres a year. And this is serious because wetlands, like other natural systems, supply us with enormously valuable services, which we can only replace artificially, if we can do it at all, at, at great cost. I'm thinking about, about services like water supply and aquifer replenishment, water purification, flood control and coastal storm damage limitation, nesting and feeding areas for waterfowl and other wildlife, and nurseries, this is one people tend to forget, nurseries for most of our commercial fish and shellfish. The National Marine Fisheries Service estimates that the destruction of our coastal wetlands in about the 22-year uh, period between 1954 and 1978 cost the nation well over $5 billion in lost fisheries income alone. Let's take grasslands. We're not doing any better with them than we are with our wetlands. The grasslands of the world, the savannas and the prairies, produce the most abundant and diverse mammal populations that have ever existed. And they produced us, man itself. And this is where our major foodstuffs evolved. Not only the cereal grains, but also the grazing ungulates, or hoofed animals, that we domesticated to help feed us. And this is where we're going to have to look for the wild relatives of those plants, and those animal species to provide the genetic materials to sustain and improve their productivity. Well, it's the same story. About a third of the world's grassland today is seriously deteriorated on the way to becoming desert through overuse and misuse. Our own real native grasslands, our prairies in this country, have all almost disappeared under the plow and otherwise. The tall grass prairie that you used to know here in Minnesota, among other Midwestern states, there, were, there was a million square miles of that in the US and Canada. And today, most of you probably know how hard it is to find a fragment of real, native, unaltered prairie, unplowed, left anywhere in this state or any other state. It's down to about one-tenth of one percent of that original square mile, just scattered fragments here and there. But perhaps, and we've all been reading about this in the newspapers, perhaps the most serious threat is to our forests, the largest of the terrestrial communities. Before the impact of human civilization, forest covered something like 45% of the Earth's land. More than a third of that forest area is gone now, and 30 million acres more of it is being lost each year with almost as much, again, grossly degraded. And throughout not only our country, but the whole industrialized world, the original forest, the virgin forest, which is the richest biologically, is virtually all gone. You know yourselves, in this country, we have almost nothing left. We have a little bit of redwood wood groves out west, but almost no virgin forest left. 
And most seriously of all, tropical forest, and this is the headline that you see so often, tropical forest is being cleared at a rate of 25 acres a minute, cleared and burned. At that rate, and mind you, that rate is probably almost certainly going to increase under the pressure of population, nearly all of the, of the uh, lowland forest of southeastern uh, Eastern Asia, among other areas, will be gone in a decade and as much of ha as half of all the remaining tropical forest in the world could be gone in the lifetime of our children. The consequences of that are just enormous. Forests are not only producers of materials like wood, essential to nearly every industry, and of the principal energy source, fuel wood, for nearly half the Earth's people, but they're also protectors of our watersheds and our soil. They're major contributors, purifiers of air quality and atmospheric chemistry. They're governors of rainfall and temperature and stabilizers of climate. And forests, especially tropical forests, are the principal genetic reservoirs, the, the storehouse of natural diversity of, of plant and animal species on Earth. And that brings me to the part of the environmental array of problems that I wanted to talk about, especially for a moment, the extinction crisis. That's a phrase I borrowed, to be honest. I borrowed it from the National Forum on Biodiversity, which was an ad hoc conference of scientific and other leaders at the Smithsonian in Washington about a year or so ago. And that was a distinguished group of experts, and they found that this problem and I'm borrowing their words again, the problem of extinction, which I'm going to explain, was a threat to civilization second only to the threat of thermonuclear war. Well, that problem that they perceived as that grave a threat is a direct result of the worldwide degeneration of natural systems that I've been trying to describe. What's happening is that as their natural habitats have shrunk and disappeared around the world, the flora and fauna, the plants and animals that depend on those habitats to survive, have been disappearing too. And only too often they've been disappearing to total extinction. Students of the fossil record have estimated that before the effects of human activity were felt on this earth, species, of course, were becoming extinct from time to time naturally, and that they were probably doing so, according to paleontologists, they were probably doing so at a rate somewhere between one species every thousand years or so, and maybe, or maybe three or four species every million years or so. But today, we're talking right now about, by scientific estimate of biologists, about an average rate of at least one species every hour, and that's probably highly conservative. And the likelihood that it's going to be up to several hundred species an hour in our lifetime, or at least our children's lifetime. Millions of times faster, in other words, species are beginning to go extinct than they used to do naturally before the impact of human beings. And while this problem is acute everywhere, no place is immune to it, it's especially acute in the tropical forests because they're going so fast and because they harbor such a disproportionately large share of the living creatures of the earth. Around half of all the species, by best estimate, 
on only 7% of the Earth's land. Think about this for a minute, just as illustrations of how rich these tropical forests are. Just one preserve, and it's about three square miles, on a, on a, tributary, a particular tributary of the Amazon River has been found to harbor 1,200 butterfly species, just butterfly species. One hectare of Peruvian forest, that's about two and a half acres, a little less, by actual count yielded 10,000 species of beetles. 10,000 species on two and a half acres. One acre of tropical forest typically supports at least 100 species of trees. Have you walked in your woods lately? If you count a dozen, you're doing well. This is an order of magnitude in the tropics that's totally different from what we're used to in the temperate zone, to say nothing of the polar zones. Because of this, the accelerating loss of tropical forest today foreshadows the extinction of as much as half of all the life forms existent on our planet today by the middle of the next century. Now, when you say the century, people think, oh, that doesn't concern me. The middle of the next century, some of our kids are still going to be here. Because of this, well, let me give you one other example. You can see this happening in our own country, in Hawaii. I'm sure some of you have been there and seen it. It's an isolated tropical landmass with a multitude of endemic species, species that don't exist anywhere else in the world. The lowland Hawaiian tropical forest has almost disappeared since those islands were first settled. And the upland forest is being degraded and destroyed so fast by introduced goats and pigs and other exotic animals that the famous Hawaiian bird species don't exist anywhere else on Earth. Uh, only 20% of those that were, a lot, that were still with us a century ago are still common. 40% of them have gone extinct in the last century. Another 40% are highly endangered and just barely, not, barely hanging on to existence today. Well, the costs of these extraordinary losses are of two kinds. The direct cost is the value or the potential value of the plant and animal species being lost with all of their genetic materials. And they're being lost, ironically, just at the time when the new science of genetic engineering is teaching us how to exploit these gene pools for human welfare. We're losing the raw materials for that, that vast potential for improvement in human welfare. Peter Raven, a distinguished botanist at the Missouri Botanical Garden, pointed out not long ago that the loss of each organism represents not the loss of a single entity, but the loss of thousands or tens of thousands of genes, every single one of which might be valuable to us when it's put in another kind of organism, as we're now learning to do with relative precision. Well, the indirect loss, of loss, the indirect cost is the incalculable damage being done to the natural systems of the Earth, with all that they mean for the continuation of life on this planet. As the living parts of those systems, the individual species that make up the communities of wetlands or forests or prairies or you name it, one by one are slipping away from us. It's easier to talk about the direct costs. For example, 
we already know that for our agriculture, agriculture today is sort of a race against time. Once you've got a new miracle wheat or a miracle rice or whatever, that doesn't end the battle. I used to think it did, but it doesn't. That, that's a temporary victory. For a few years, you'll have a, a surge in productivity. But if you can't, within a relatively short time, sometimes as short as three or four years, if you can't infuse new resistances into your miracle rice or your miracle wheat or whatever, the evolution of diseases and plant pests is going to be such, they're going to be changing and getting stronger in such a way that they're going to be able to attack and destroy your crop. So you've got to find new genetic qualities every few years, every short time, to strengthen, to improve, to adapt your, your crop plants. And the source of that can only be related plants in the wild. We're losing that potential. Those, those related plants that might give us those new genetic qualities, those new resistances, are gradually going extinct and being destroyed. We're going to need to find new food plants, too. Our soil in a lot of parts of the world, the parts that have been irrigated, for example, and have become saline, we're going to need plants that can thrive, crop plants that can thrive in salty soils. We're going to have to look to the grasslands of the world and the forests of the world for new plants that can live in those soils and give us important food crops. But if we destroy the forests and we destroy the grasslands, where are we going to look for those new food plants? And it's the same thing for industry. There's scarcely an industry that doesn't use vegetable oils or waxes or whatever substances of some kind or other from the natural world as an important raw material. No industry is going to suffer more than our medicine is going to suffer as we lose, we let these plants and animals go extinct around the world. A great deal, a great many of the modern miracle drugs are derived directly or indirectly in one way or another from the, from the natural world, from plants and animals. Anti-cancer drugs from periwinkle plants, digitalis from foxglove, quinine came from the coffee family, penicillin from a mold, and you could mention hundreds more. Penicillin was the first one, as you probably know, of hundreds of antibiotics, which have been derived now from bacteria and from fungi, funguses, and which have had an enormous effect on, on human health, especially child health. And an investigation of the higher plants for those kinds of medical benefits has just barely started, and yet we're losing those plants which may have the the cancer drug we're looking for, we're losing them every day before we've even tried, before we've even named many of these species. The indirect costs of extinctions are very difficult to measure. We just don't know the ecosystems, the natural systems of the earth well enough to say how many of what kinds of each organism those natural systems need to go on functioning. But what we do know is that we're losing those systems piece by piece. In the words of a very distinguished biologist, Paul Ehrlich of Stanford University, the overwhelming cost that civilization will pay for the extinction epidemic is the loss of the irreplaceable life support systems that natural ecosystems supply gratis. Regulation of the quality of our atmosphere amelioration of our climate, 
provision of fresh water, disposal of wastes, recycling of nutrients, generation and maintenance of soils, control of the vast majority of potential pests of crops and carriers of disease, provision of food from the sea, and the maintenance of a vast genetic library of wild populations and species from which humanity has already drawn and can continue to draw enormous benefits. And then he went on to say, and what I find is sobering thought, the ultimate cost may be the collapse of civilization. Well, I hope I've said enough to persuade any doubters who may be listening this morning that we have urgent work to do. I know that the trends I've been describing are at least broadly familiar to most of you. What I find doesn't come across to people so well from the accounts they read in the media is a sense of the imminence of these problems, of the stunning rate at which the scale of environmental impacts like extinctions is increasing day by day and hour by hour, how little time we have left to make major course corrections in our society if we're going to avoid consequences unprecedented in human, or perhaps we could say in biological history. We're the first generation in human history to face this challenge on a global scale. And if we don't respond to it adequately, the generations not yet born will just have no opportunity to do better. The damage will already have been done. So what is to be done? Well, I think at least part of the answer is clear to meet the extinction crisis. There's just one thing to do. We've got to preserve natural systems with all of their habitats and species in the wild. I don't think there's anything else that can do this job. Zoos, aquaria, arboreta, seed banks, these are all great institutions. They can and they do make a contribution to this job. But none of them can shelter whole natural ecosystems, and none of them can harbor more than a small fraction, a very small fraction of the diversity that's out there that has to be protected. And they all have other limitations, both financial and biological. Today, there's something over a, a billion acres in three or 4,000 nature reserves around the world. And it's been estimated by scientists that we need three times as much as that to protect examples of all of the Earth's ecosystems. A lot of that acreage will be needed just to enlarge the sanctuaries we've already got, many of which are simply too small to do their job. And we've got to see that the areas between reserves and parks, including the areas where we live, where people live, don't become wastelands. Outside the parks, we can establish green belts, hedgerows, woodlots, windbreaks, stream banks can be allowed to remain wild to reinforce the preservation work that's going on in the sanctuaries. We could stop thinking about parks as sort of isolated museums and start thinking about them as key parts of still larger systems, as particularly important and beautiful areas lying along corridors of wildness all across the country or the world. And while as many preserves as possible certainly should be as free as possible of human disturbance, we've got to face the fact that many parks are going to survive 
only if the people living around them see a direct and immediate benefit from respecting them. The best hope for the African elephant, for example, lies in strictly policing the ivory traffic in such a way that the local villagers and local governments are its beneficiaries, not poachers and smugglers. Nepal has greatly improved the prospects for its remaining tiger habitat in a place called the Royal Chitwan National Park. By allowing the villagers who live in great density all around the boundaries of the park to cut grass in the park at a certain season annually for thatching, which may not sound like much to you, but it's a major benefit in the economy of those villages. We could learn how to restore degraded land. We've got a lot of work to do there and encourage the restoration of as much of it as possible. Anything from abandoned railroads to silted streams, marginal farms. Probably the only way to save some of our aquatic species is going to be by restoring vegetation on stream banks, reducing the silt and dechannelizing the stream bed. That's happening now, for example, on the Kissimmee River uh, in Florida. It'd be interesting to see how that works. But restoration isn't going to do the job for us. It'll help, but it isn't going to be a substitute for preventing the damage to begin with. We're a long way from knowing how to, and showing that we know how to recreate large complex systems like wetlands and prairies and forests, especially tropical forests, in their original condition. Studies in Venezuela suggest that uh, you can restore a small plot that's been of forest that's been subjected to slash and burn uh, for agriculture in a relatively short time, like 150 years. But if there's been major damage to that forest, if it's been bulldozed or other major alteration, it's probably going to take a thousand years or more for a mature forest to be restored. In some, our best interest lies in protecting all the forms of life as far as possible where they are. And that means avoiding wherever possible any more development of our remaining virgin lands, land that has never been timbered or plowed or drained or flooded or paved, and using instead some of the, the great abundance we have of land that's previously been altered. It's been developed in some degree for other purposes. We have a lot of that. We have very little real natural, natural land left. And I think preservation means teaching people that the other life forms of the earth are essential to our own existence. It means using our foreign aid program to help raise the priority of preserving natural diversity in foreign countries through their governments. If you'll indulge me in a plug, I think preservation means joining and supporting organizations like the Nature Conservancy which is the principal private organization dedicated to identifying and preserving the most endangered natural communities and species in this country and abroad. And um, another thing that I think it means is uh, we've got to support legislation like a piece of legislation that was introduced just in the last couple of days right here in this state, in your legislature, the so-called Minnesota Environment and Natural Resources Trust Fund. That's a bill supported by the governor and by the leadership of both houses of your legislature, which wants to build a billion dollar trust fund for environmental work, essentially for doing the kind of preservation I'm talking about right now, uh, in this state. It's something that we desperately need in every state, and we need it nationally, because the Land and Water Conservation Fund, which was set up by Congress 
years ago for the same sort of purpose is now expiring. Uh, we can't afford to have those resources lost. We need these kinds of special funds in every state um, to preserve our most precious natural resources and wildlife. I hope you'll all get behind that bill. And I think it means giving top priority to the tropics. If we can do these kinds of things, we're going to be giving ourselves and protecting other organisms. We're going to be giving them and ourselves a better chance for a better life. But I don't think setting up parks, preserving the, the endangered species and the endangered systems is going to do all the job we have to do. If we're going to stop living off our capital, we're going to start doing a better job of preserving it, we've got to make even more basic changes, I think. We've got to change the way we see the world. We've got to change the way we use it every day in our daily lives when we're not thinking about conservation. We've got to put behind us the feeling that I think is instinctive in most of us that the Earth's resources are infinite and that the biosphere can absorb infinite abuse. We've got to see our overriding goal as what's being called today a sustainable society, which just means a society living within its income. We're heavily in the red now. That is, we're consuming far more than can be replaced, earth, air, water, and so on. We've, so for that reason, we've surely got to stop the runaway growth of world population as soon as humanely possible. And ultimately, we have to look ahead to reducing our population to get it down to a level which we can sustain. But it isn't only the number of people living that will determine our future. It's also how they live. And if we're going to be successful in managing that relationship, we're going to have to reduce our dependence on non-renewable resources like oil. We're going to have to recycle metals and other materials, manufacture for durability, not disposability, save fossil fuels for use where we don't have any choice, any substitute, and provide real encouragement, which we're not really doing today, for the development of alternative fuels. We're going to have to protect the productivity of our renewable resources, for example, by conserving and recycling water, protecting watersheds. We're going to have to enlarge our efforts to control the pollution of our soil and our water and atmosphere. And perhaps as important as anything else, we're going to have to be open to new ideas about all of these matters, recognizing that our understanding of our relationship to our environment is rapidly changing. I know it's a tough agenda, and I want to just remind you that before I sit down that the news isn't all bad. We have some good things happening. In population, for example, in this country, birth rates have declined dramatically since the late 1960s. Uh, in, 19, in the 1970s, China finally recognized the effects of overpopulation and launched family planning programs. Growth rates have been declining in this decade in every region except Africa. And I think world environmental awareness, public environmental awareness is changing too. Uh, look at this country, look at our energy conservation in this country. Cars have become smaller in recent years. Buildings have been insulated. Appliances redesigned for energy efficiency. Green parties, essentially environmental parties, are popping up around the world, particularly in Europe. Brazil is now planning to preserve 600,000 square miles, almost a fifth of its territory. 
And there's other good news. We're not starting from scratch here. Everything isn't bad, but we do have a long way to go and none too much time to get there. And I suggest to you that we really don't have any option but to step up the pace of our efforts to deal with these problems. Neither astronomical observation nor planetary exploration has turned up any suitable habitat for human beings anywhere else but here. And Homo sapiens is no more immune to the effects of the degradation of his habitat than the passenger pigeon or the manatee. It took four billion years of natural evolution to produce the unique environment which sustains life on this earth and keeps our planet from becoming an inferno like Venus or a waste, frozen waste like Mars. We've only been a part of that life for a tiny fraction of that time, those eons, perhaps 1% of 1% of it, but already we've managed to disturb and degrade our environment in the way that I've shown. Most of that damage has been done in my lifetime and yours, and it's increasing. And if we're going to leave to our children and our grandchildren anything like as healthy and supportive and rich a natural world as we inherited, which means anything like as good a chance for a happy life, then we're going to have to put that goal at the top of our priority list now before it's too late, because all too soon one endangered species could be us. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mr. Blair. The word in your title that caught my attention to begin with was the word extinction. And the word that's deep in my soul after all that you've said about what we've done to the to the air and the earth uh, is epidemic. And thank you for sounding the alarm so eloquently. Let me just remind radio audience that this is the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church. We do thank the Minnesota chapter of the Nature Conservancy for helping to bring Mr. Blair here. Our speaker indeed has been Mr. Blair, William Blair, uh, a conservationist talking on the global environment and the extinction crisis. Uh, we don't have a lot of time for questions, but do send them. Uh, a few have already been uh, gotten to our uh, sorters, namely Diane and Paul Nyman, who are co-founders of these town hall forums some five, rather, eight years ago. Well, sir, would you return to the podium, and why don't we start firing a a few questions at you. Uh, I'd like to, to put one just out of interest. Uh, you have a background in journalism and government service. Uh, what moved you uh, into this arena? Uh, just uh, out of personal interest, shall we say. Well, I was one of those lucky people who turned his hobby into a job. When I was working for the State Department in Washington, uh, I enjoyed the outdoors like so many of us. I got into uh, various forms of outdoor activity, including uh, bird watching. Uh, that, once you get interested in any form of wildlife, you soon find that it's disappearing. That leads you into conservation. Uh, I became a volunteer for a, a local uh, Audubon group, uh -huh. and uh, one thing leads to another. <laughs> Thank you. I had a hunch it was something like that. Uh, question from the floor. What have been the most significant sources of support for conservation in the U.S.? 
the most significant sources of support. Well, if you're talking about, if the questioner is talking about uh, financial sources, of course, they are us. Uh, they are individuals who care about the natural world uh, and have gotten interested in it. They are uh, foundations who uh, have perceived the environmental area as one needing their financial support. And the business community, which in recent years uh, has become more and more uh, sensitive to environmental, environmental concerns and is supporting various forms of uh, environmental preservation activities. Of course, government is a, is a major source of support and we have to work to keep, keep that happening. We, we can't afford to have all of this job of environmental preservation left to the private sector. It should be a major national and state and local concern and a government concern. Uh, but we've got to keep nudging our legislators that this is a top priority and this is not something they should let go or fail to fund. So I'd say those were the principal uh, sources of material support. Thank you. Another question from the floor. We've had a major controversy about our zoo here in Minnesota and related ethical issues about our attitudes about animals. How do professional conservationists feel about zoos? Well, I think zoos are not only enjoyable, but they're essential. They're a marvelous educational uh, tool. And as I tried to indicate briefly, they can contribute to the preservation of endangered species, and in fact are contributing to the preservation of endangered species. The problem is that it was estimated by the head of the New York Zoo not long ago that to build up a population and maintain a population of just 500 individual animals of a certain species of a, of a medium average size, uh, 500 individuals for 20 years costs something like $25 million. That's, so that's to protect one, 500 members of one species for 25 years. Well, clearly at that order of magnitude of costs, you're not going to be able to preserve many endangered species through zoos. Um, but they are doing um, a terrific job within the focus of what they can do. Uh, the golden tamarind monkey, for example, is being uh, returned to the wild in the coastal forest of Brazil because the population was built up to a safe level uh, by zoos. So there, there will be some success stories, but that's not going to, they're not going to be able to cover the numbers, anything like the numbers that preservation in the wild can cover and should cover. Thank you. Another question from the floor. If technology, in quotes, got us our earth, or got our earth into such a mess, is there a reasonable hope that technology can help cure some of these ills? Well, I'm, I'm always hopeful about everything, yes. Uh, <laughs> I and it's going to take technology to find ways to uh, recycle materials and to uh, deal with the pollution problem and so on. I'm, I hope my remarks this morning won't be interpreted as, a, as an attack on technology. We need technology. Technology saves lives. But it also can be abused and can create problems. And we're going to have to get the tech, technicians' help in dealing with those technological problems. I think you addressed this question in part, but perhaps you could reemphasize at the end of this question on paper. In other words, why do we need 10,000 species of beetles, for example? <laughs> well, I know I'm, I'm not a big beetle man myself, but, 
But who knows, those beetles, one species of those beetles may contain sub-substance that will uh, allow us all to live forever. I just don't know. <laughs> uh, could you say a word about the Chesapeake Bay? We keep reading about the crisis with regard to that particular well, body Chesapeake of water. Chesapeake Bay is part of, the, part of the problem, not yet part of the solution. We've polluted and seriously damaged the fisheries of the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, there are, however, some good things happening. The states around the bay, uh, notably Maryland, Virginia, and Pennsylvania, have gotten together and agreed at the highest level of state government that uh, we can't let this national disgrace of the decline of the bay continue. And they are setting aside special resources. They are accelerating programs of research and, um, and other kinds of programs to try to help stop, for example, or at least reduce agricultural damaging agricultural runoff into the bay. And so the problem is getting a level of attention, which it didn't until very recently. But as of today, the bay is in poor shape relative to its historical contribution. Right. Thank you. If I may, I'd like to quote something I read last night thinking toward uh, our time together. The comment is, if there are, say, some green salamanders and some people left 500 years from now, the latter, the people, may look at the former and marvel at people of this age who could conceive of saving such things and figure out how to do it. <laughs> we marvel at what you've brought to us in the intensity of your commitment and knowledge, and we we're, we're just uh, rejoice that you are bringing this sense of urgency to this issue. We thank you. Thank you. <laughs>